Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode 25 of Fantasy for Our Time. It's the second in our mini-series discussing the Rings of Power show, and once again I have Richard Rowland over for a lively, lively chat where we talk about, uh, well, a lot of stuff. In particular, we ask the question, are elves more like chargeable batteries or glow-in-the-dark frisbees? More on that later. In the meantime, a few vignettes from this writer's life. I just recently got back from the Ancient Faith Writers and Podcasters Conference in Antiochian Village over in near Pittsburgh. I had to be in and out of there. I gave two speeches, one on the uh, uses of Kickstarter as a marketing tool, and the other one was a more typical of me uh, lecture title, which was The Consolation of Story, Why Become a Storyteller, Maybe the Most Important Thing You Do in Your Life. And uh, interestingly, we'd had a lot of lively back and forth from the from the audience, and uh, uh, not all of the feedback was positive, which for me was uh, was a pleasant challenge and uh, something interesting. Keeps me sharp and making sure that the way I uh, express my thoughts are not simply made in, made in an echo chamber, but are actually tested out on real people who have real opinions. So that was something that was quite lovely. There's one week left until. Uh, the Venture Quest adventure race over in Maryland on October 1st. So I'm in my, uh, actually, the best part of the training uh, for a race is the taper. This happens after, uh, right, the last two weeks of the of the race. That's when you really don't do, don't go hard in your training. You start sleeping more, more eating well, and uh, relying on your training and not uh, overthinking, overstressing too much and kind of entering into the, into the, into the morning of the race rested, uh, full of energy and full of enthusiasm. So this is my favorite time. It's an opportunity to uh, relax a little bit, to read, and to watch Rings of Power, let's be honest. Uh, I did want to um, include one recommendation of a wonderful book that I recently finished. Uh, it's called Of Wolves and Men by uh, Gary Lowe. I hope I got that right. I just wrote down the uh, the title uh, in my notes, not the uh, not the author, silly me. Um, it's a It's a wonderful book. It's hard to cat- categorize. It's uh, a natural history of man's study of wolves. It's also a study of the American folklore's interaction with wolves. It's a study of European man's hatred of the wolf. And it's also a study of literature's enduring fascination with the wolf, all the way from uh, the stories of Romulus and Remus to the um, great wolf Fenris in the Twilight mythology to the Wolf Story of Jack London, um, a fantastic, gorgeous book uh, that for a writer of fantasy and a reader of fantasy is an interesting companion to anyone who loves uh, to figure out how world-building 
really good world building work. And for the for the writers in the audience, definitely something to read, just so you can really begin to understand how it is that human beings uh, relate in history and folklore, in legend and in literature to the natural world, and how that proper kind of relationship can inform your own creation in your own fictional world. Absolutely wonderful book, highly recommended. But that's enough for me uh, from my personal life. Uh, let's move on and uh, uh, start the conversation with Richard, which was a good one. Hope you enjoy. Well, hello there, dear friends, and welcome to another conversation about the Rings of Power between Richard Rowland and me. And uh, welcome, Richard. We're not going to introduce you like we did last time. I'm just assuming people know who you are now. Uh, and uh, dear people, if you don't know who Richard is, watch or listen to the previous episode, and you will be treated to much useful and interesting information. But uh, we're going to go straight into analysis today. How are you doing, Richard? There's a storm within me. And it wants to speak tempest. To your tempest. Oh, sorry. There's a tempest within me, and it wants to speak to your manager. <laughs> yes, fair enough. Oh dear. All right. So today we're talking about episodes four and five of the Rings of Power. Uh, there's been some interesting feedback already to the first episode uh, that we've done. Um, much of it has been actually quite encouraging. Some of it has not been. Which is to be expected, but um, to be fair, uh, I was ready for it, for it to be angrier, and it really wasn't. Which probably means that my reach isn't all that extensive. Let's be well, honest. I've always <laughs> felt that like if if you're getting kind of like 50-50 feedback, then mm. you're probably like you're probably doing okay. You know, it's like yeah. Well, considering the internet, the you're probably who, doing really well. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like half of the people who listen to this hate it, and half of the people who listen to this like wildly loved it. You know, or you know, then it's like, okay, well, you know, that's, well, you, that's you want them to show up, right? Say. Yeah. Right. I mean, and that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're not, we're not the kinds of people who, and, uh, and this really is a phenomenon and more, more and more people are making a point of this, you know, the, the YouTuber whose only existence is to angrily critique things, even though, even, you know, whether right. the person likes it or not, right. that is, that is the form of entertainment. Now I used to think that these people are actually were well, you know, intentioned in the way, in the sense that they wanted the, the larger, uh, a community of filmmakers to just do a better job. No, I actually think they're quite happy that things are the way they are because they yeah. are the they are now the entertainment, um, which is an interesting, I suppose, state of affairs. Very postmodern, very odd. Kind of but, meta, yeah. Like comment commentary as entertainment or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure how I feel about it, uh, but yeah. So, uh. Lots of stuff is happening in this show, episodes four and five. Plenty, a plenty of things to talk about. Both of us, I'm sure, are bursting yeah. the seams uh, with with our desire to inflict and upon I'm you. Sure, <laughs> I'm sure there is going to be there. There will be things that we miss, dear listener. Yeah. Oh, for sure, like, there will be things that we miss. Um, but yeah, a lot has happened in the last two episodes, or not very much has happened in the last two episodes. It's like a little, both. It's like both, both at the same both time. Both at once, yeah. both at the same time. Yeah, um, yeah. certainly some interesting revelations and developments, especially as of episode five. Yeah. Which and may not mean anything ultimately. Some, right. Yeah. But some <laughs> things that I have uh, be in my bonnet about as it were, and some oh, me stuff too. I really liked. Mm -hmm. So if we can just talk about like, uh, to begin to praise Caesar, not to, uh, yes, I agree. I agree. Um, um, uh, so, um, Elendil's helmet. 
Okay. Yes. Totally agree. Was, <laughs> I mean, I, it was the first time watching the show, which obviously we've talked about um, how beautiful it is, mm-hmm. how great the set design is, all this different stuff. Um, Alindil's helmet was the first thing in the show that made me catch my breath. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And like there was this, there was this moment, like as he's standing on the deck of the ship, and it wasn't like a slow mo moment. Right, it wasn't a moment that they were trying to make you feel like was a moment that yes. they do that, with which Galadriel. they do a lot. It's super yeah. annoying, and yeah. I hate it. <laughs> and they they do that, for instance, when Galadriel steps on the boat, and mm-hmm. we're supposed to be like, oh look, it's Galadriel. She's in armor now. This is a big moment, right? But yeah. right before that, when um, Elendil is on the ship, and he just like turns around to look at his son, and he's in the cloak, and he's got the big winged helm and everything. Yeah. And there's this there's this moment where I, I just like felt like that's a sea king of old. Like that is that is exactly what he is supposed to look like. That is beautiful. Um and I you know I thought that was the, for me that was like a general a, a genuine moment of delight. Yeah. Um so kudos so to they him. Happen, so they do happen, people they see. Do, they <laughs> do happen. Yeah. I'm not, you know, like yeah, it's and and the thing is like I I, I want to find things to be delighted in. So uh, the, because, the thing the thing that I really like about the helmet is that what what it really looks like is not just that it's it's not just cool that it's winged, but it looks like the the completely useless uh, but very awesome to look at wings that uh, Polish cavalry in the 16th century wore all the time, but miniaturized, I, properly formed, and stuck on someone's head. It's I assume <laughs> that we have all heard the winged hussars arrive like song, yep. like the the like the metal song. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't listen yes. to metal, but I know that song. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, that was actually one of the first thoughts I had is like, Ooh, winged hussars, but also, mm-hmm. uh, but also like, this is a, this is a genuine, like attention, little bit of detail from the actual lore, right? Yeah. Is that the later on the crown of, of the crown of the reunited kingdom in middle earth is going to be, uh, that Aragorn wears, for instance, is going to be this winged helmet from Numenor. And it's supposed to be like the one that Elendil had. So that was great. I thought that was just a really nice piece of detail. Um, uh, and it, it, it was, you know, it, if there's one thing that did bug me almost immediately after when Galadriel steps on the ship, she's wearing like Renaissance era Italian. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And the, the, the grognard part of my brain <laughs> said, wait a minute, why is everybody else in like late dark ages or, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, like scale a- mail. migration yeah. scale mail. And she's yeah. in Renaissance era plate. If Numenor had, and she didn't bring that with her because we Sorry. all remember she showed up to Numenor in, in her shift. Right. So yeah. she didn't bring that with her, which means that Numenor has the ability to craft Renaissance era plate. Yeah. And they're why choosing to wear scale mail. <laughs> why isn't everyone wearing that? Like, but anyway, okay, I, I understand that I'm one of the only people in the world who's going to be bothered by this sort of thing. Well, Although- you're you're not. Don't forget, Richard, that this was a major point of contention when the when the Return of the King came out. There was that there was true. a lot of conversation about this. I don't know how young you were at that. No, point. No, I was involved in those conversations. <laughs> okay, all right. I was very irritated <laughs> yes. by all of the men of Gondor wearing uh, plate armor. That then you know a single hit from a tiny orc mace and they're just down. That that the scene at a, like the running fight in Asgiliath. And it's like, oh, single hit from an orc mace, and you're just down on the ground. And like, what is the what? Hmm. But anyway. Yeah, and and for those who are like, wait, what's the problem? I reference you to the conversation I have had previously on this podcast with 
um, professional reenactor Christian Cameron, who has explained that uh, a properly made breastplate, you can drive a car over it and it'll be fine. Yeah. Okay. So, yes, uh, I've, I had one moment of delight uh, in episode five as well. I had several in episode four, but since we're talking about episode five, let's talk about. Uh, yeah, the and we can go back and talk about episode four, which I thought was the strongest episode so far. Yeah, yeah we the, will. We will for yeah, sure. Yeah. But uh, I actually really, really liked the Harfoot song. Uh, I thought it was I really nice. I, it the was... melody was great. It was not. So it's very hard to, to, to write melody that's simultaneously uh, folksy and not saccharine. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to do. And even for all of my worshiping at the altar of, you know, figurative speaking, of um, Howard Shore, he did not always get the singing parts right. Mm -hmm. uh, there were one or two songs in, in the original trilogy that I thought were slightly discordant that, that didn't quite do what he wanted them to do. Um, this one, uh, I loved it. Okay, so I really liked the melody. I liked that it was, it, it embodied them very well. It sounded Irish. So if you're going to go that the har the har feet, harfoots, uh, have Irish accents, um, then you might as well go whole hog and just give them an Irish ditty, which is great. I like it. It's fine. But the thing that really made me happy is that in the process of me enjoying the beautiful music, they did something that they should have done about five times over the course of this uh, series so far, and that's compress time and space through the um, uh, through by through using montage. yeah through montage by using a map and by using the song and by using short uh, you know short images and short scenes to to give us a sense of uh, time and space passing because honestly really not that much has been happening at all um, in the whole well certainly now with the Harfoots but in yeah. a lot of the a lot of the subplots there's not really you could you could stick all all the stuff that's happening into a single episode so i really appreciated that they did it it was a very uh nice way of showing the map so that we we remember where we are we, we see where we are uh it was artfully done it, it I, just, I liked it a lot yeah i also enjoyed the song now the song you don't you just the songs you just like from the jackson trilogy aren't into the west by any with any lennox singing is it because no no i love that okay. one that was that we, one's the we, best. We would have to come to blows if that were the case. I, I actually, <laughs> I actually heard um, they did a, a Lord of the Rings. Uh, how, what do you call this? Like a Lord of the Rings live mm. uh, here in Dallas once, and so basically, oh, like with the whole orchestra where they show the yeah, movie and the orchestra. Yeah, so they show the movie, but instead of instead of like the the soundtrack from the movie, you have a live orchestra playing the soundtrack. Yeah, as the that's movie awesome. Goes. That's and Annie that. Lennox yeah. sang into the West. Come on. It was one of the great moments of my life. Are like, you serious? Yes, that is, that's amazing. I was just, oh, oh, one of the great moments of my life. So anyway, like if that was the case, I was no, 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 like, no, 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 okay, no. That right. song, I can't, okay. I can't listen to that song without tears coming to my oh, eyes. In, yeah, in total seriousness. That yeah. it's, it was just okay. Yeah. All right, yeah. Just as an aside, <laughs> what a great song. Um, yeah. So I also enjoyed the Harfoot song, and the thing that impressed me. Uh, is that they managed to work in some like lyrics from actual Tolkien poems. Okay, uh, I didn't realize that was the case. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, they managed to work in the line, you know, at the very end, not all who wonder are lost, right? Yes, you know, that I noticed, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not all who wonder or wander are lost is the version mm -hmm. they did here, which I thought was quite nice. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, the kind of the theme of the song, as I can remember it, 
um, I guess I could have put all the lyrics, but the theme of the song, as I can remember it, is really about the, you know, the world is dangerous, but also there's really beautiful things. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and so that's why this dangerous thing that we're doing is sort of worth doing. Well, it, it's a beautiful bit of world building that they've been doing so badly uh, in in a lot of other ways, mm -hmm. like where they where they start, you know, telling you the the way that the world works in ways that nobody would ever talk in real life. You know, right. when they're yeah. when they're info dumping on you, the, this is this is one of those examples that we talked about last time. That's a very effective and very subtle way of showing instead of telling. When you give through the through the words of the song and through the actions of the characters as the montage is happening, the entire substance of what the heart foots heart feet. <laughs> are <laughs> um it's it's brilliant i love it uh, and by the way all that previous all those previous scenes uh of you know info dumping are made essentially uh redundant by this one small right. little scene right we could have yeah. just kept him out we would have understood everything that we needed to know about the, the whole the whole nobody leaves the trail nobody walks alone. yeah especially that <laughs> unless you fall behind and then yeah. you definitely walk alone because there's like a sort of like the hardfoots have less sort of like survival they're darwinists they're yeah, they you think I I was I was I was gonna say that as like no I'll say it it's fine okay yeah. no no I'll say it yeah, yeah. I mean they're very Darwinist in that they're like you know like well but if you can't keep up we're just sorry it's too bad and we'll we'll remember you mm -hmm. you know and be like you know we'll read your name out of the book later but also we didn't do anything to help you along right um, yeah which you know that that by the way this getting together and sitting sitting in the circle and reading out the names of the deceased as an idea I thought was one of the more effective uses of ritual but. The, considering the fact that they could have prevented all of those deaths, it right. makes it, it was very it was a very uncomfortable scene. Yeah, yeah, I, w I was I I said it like I I I felt uncomfortable because I I felt like I get what you're trying to do here, but yeah, this is pretty dark if you just stop and think about the implications for like thirty seconds. Right. Please yeah. turn your brain off, please. Yeah, because yeah. otherwise, yeah, it's it's a little bit it's a little yeah. bit hard. But we're gonna get to the dark and, and nitty gritty because there's plenty of that coming up. Um, I I personally really liked. I don't know how you feel about this, but I was wondering how they were going to get uh, Tarmiriel to um, to agree with Galadriel that they needed to send an army to Middle Earth, and I d I didn't see how they were gonna do it. Um, I suppose I should have, um, but I did. I have to turn my brain off at the beginning of these episodes, at least a little bit, because if I don't, then it, it gets a little bit annoying. So um, when the when the leaves when the uh, sorry the petals started to fall, and when she was immediately affected by it, okay. So I'm taking this out of context. Out. So I'm sort of tearing this out of the context of the rest of the episode because I think there's some real problems with the conversation between Muriel and Galadriel. Uh, right before this, I think it's very weird, and I don't know, but we'll get we'll get there. But I just think that the the fact that the writers committed to allowing a, an act of God to provide uh, motivation for a yeah. character in a in a medieval fantasy, finally, finally, somebody in modern times was allowed to do this because even in even in historical um, uh, fiction of you know anything like from wolf hall to anything set in the middle ages nowadays everybody has to be um a believer but only in quotation marks and any act of god is always understood to be either accidental or believed only but only by fools right, right? Yeah. and the smart the smart people look at this with skepticism and will never will never take an act of god to be real i hadn't actually thought was. about that in wolf hall but you're totally right yeah well and rest in peace um 
the author of uh, Hillary Mantel. She died today, actually. Oh, um, no. So I'm not going to say anything bad, but um, because I really don't like Wolf Hall, but she was very, she was a good writer. So yeah. And rest in peace. But getting back to that, I thought that, uh, that was a very, a very effective scene with the, with the tree losing its petals and it, it could have been contrived. It could have been forced. I don't think it was. I think it worked. So I was, yeah. I was happy. I agree. Um, I thought that was, Okay, so just to get into this a little bit, yeah. How much better was that than the sort of spidery blood ink veins up the side of the of the same tree in Linden, right? Yeah, yeah. So these are supposed to be like you know both shoots of Telperion or whatever, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So so this one is like there's a there's a west wind that blows in mm-hmm. from the west and yes. blows the the petals off the white tree of Numenor and mm-hmm. everyone's like, that is very bad. This has not happened before. Yep. This is really bad. Um, yeah. as opposed to the sort of like, um, black slime, black slime. Um, and like, like you could have done the same thing in both places. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about black slime. I think yeah. at, at yeah. M- in more detail later, um, because it's that yeah. whole sequence is extremely problematic, Yeah, but, it's redeemable. So yeah, since we're but, still talking about the good, it's redeemable. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what I, I guess what I thought was really, uh, w- what I liked about that is like, it was much more delicate and it felt like this would happen in a Tolkien story, which ultimately yeah. that's my bar. Yes. <laughs> everyone. That's my comparison is okay. I'm not looking for, this has to be word for word. What was in a Tolkien story, but would this happen in Tolkien's middle earth? Right. Would this happen in, you know, like, Obviously, Middle Earth changes and develops over time. I've done lots and lots of episodes on Amun Sul about this. Yep. Obviously, yep. things are a little more fairy tale, a little more childish early on, and then the legendary matures. But I'm just yep. what I'm looking to see is like, would this have would this would this be conceivably be a project, a product of a mature legendarium? Right. That's the question that I'm always kind of asking whenever we're looking at new content is does it fit? And yeah. I definitely felt like that did. Um because otherwise I was really not sold on the whole Galadriel is just going to stamp her foot and insist that she gets her own way um, until they give her an army. But then it's like, okay, now there's an act of God and, and uh, Tarmiriel is feeling like, okay, well, I've got to do something here. Um, yeah. And um, what did you think of the... So like in Muriel's dream, there, mm-hmm. there's some kind of like an almost like naming ceremony or. Yeah. So the naming ceremony, I do not like at all. Um, Thank you. I felt very put off by it. Yeah. Okay. So this is a larger conversation, but you started it. So let's, let's get into it. Uh, we might get back to some of the good. This is the, this is we're already uh, delving into the slightly problematic, but yeah. uh, we, we're not crazy about linear. I'm just thinking, I'm thinking oh, in terms of like, right. Yeah. I'm thinking in terms of like episode four stuff right now no no you're so, fair that's that's yeah. fair so if, yeah if we're just doing if we're doing that chronologically then that's fair no okay so this is part of the lar- larger problem uh, we i mentioned this last time uh when i talked about how the way that they're doing ritual uh is is very odd because it doesn't seem to be uh, rooted or grounded in any sort of real life uh, action or movement and uh one of the one of my uh, patrons uh, pushed me on it and said, "Can you can you be more specific and give us more details yeah. of what you're talking about? Because it might not be obvious to everybody, like it's like it is obvious to you." Uh, so I thought I would try that and see if um, see if I can get a little more 
specific by uh, by saying what I liked about some ritual scenes and what I didn't like about others. Um, so the problem is that uh, this is a problem of worldview. I think this is a pro- this is a problem that is talked about in that New York Times article that we referenced last time that everybody needs to read if you haven't read it yet it's it's the title is very easy to remember please don't make a tolkien cinematic universe it's one no. of the great it's one of the great headlines by, by a pretty serious tolkien scholar and it's, it's clear that um he wasn't just let in as the kind of token 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 i can't do it not today it's been a long week but it's not like it's not like the new york times is trying to check a token box there um yeah, he knows what he's talking about. And it's uh, part of what he says. I don't want to quote it here. I can later if, if we want to. But basically, his point is that it's it's very difficult for anybody to have the kind of internal makeup that Tolkien had, the kind, the, the extreme depth of knowledge uh, of just being absorbed in a worldview that is about as diametrically opposed from ours as you can possibly be. A point, by the way, made a lot right now by, by a lot of very intelligent people, including Jonathan Pejo, and including Eugene Vodolaskin, uh, who has two articles in First Things that I just recently reread. On They're called The Age of Concentration and um, something like The New Middle Ages, I think. Oh, neat. You have I'll to, have to look for those. I'm a, you do. Such, you absolutely I'm have such, to. such a big fan of his book. He's incredible, but he's not just wonderful as a storyteller. He's a, he's a very profound thinker. Uh, and in those... In those stories, he makes it very clear that that right now there's be, there's a shift happening. The shift is happening away from the Enlightenment um, sort of me first world of of uh, of the pleasure principle of the individual as self made god, but it's we're still in there. We haven't passed out of it yet. So he's predicting that we're going to pass out of it, just as Jonathan Pedro talks about reenchantment and things like this, right? But we're not there yet. And this show, I feel, is like it's it's trying to do both or not on purpose. Like it, it exists in both worlds and it doesn't exist in either one very firmly. So I honestly, I don't know. It'd be really interesting to, to get to talk to the, uh, to the showrunners to talk specifically to them about their religious worldview uh, in a, in a setting that they, that would be safe for them because I haven't seen anything on it anywhere. Nowadays you can't talk about religion because it's, it's just as dangerous and awful as talking about politics. Right. Um, or possibly even worse. Because it, my sense is that I think they are men of faith to a certain degree, but the faith that they have is not a faith that is uh, rooted in uh, in a ritual in a ritualistic um, sacramental uh, form. I could be wrong, but it doesn't seem to me like that's the case. Because all of the rituals that the good guys do, there's an idea behind it. And they try to pick some cool, one single cool way of embodying that idea that would suggest a more, uh, is, that would suggest something above it that they were reaching towards, right? So it doesn't provide a deep underlying stratum for the formation and the sanctification of, of uh, mundane action. So it's like they're, they're trying to reach up, but without being rooted in the ground in any in any way shape or form like trying to build a building with, without a foundation right yeah. R- trying to build a tower towards heaven without pos- without properly founding it on the earth and I, I think this might be a larger problem with with american protestantism in general i don't know i'm not an expert but it it does seem to me to be the case uh, especially if you, I, if you, I am an expert and yeah. yes 
Yeah, okay, so fine. Yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll I was, just go uh, there. <laughs> if the audience doesn't know, I was an evangelical pastor for eight years before we became Orthodox. Yeah. And trying to fill in those gaps, right, in exactly the way you're describing, is what led me to the church, basically. Yeah. 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 So they, they don't by trying to create our own rituals for things. Right. And at some right. point you have to say, well, it's not it's not very intellectually honest of me to like try to reinvent the wheel on this stuff. So. Well, that's the point. And I'm not saying that they're being intellectually honest or something like this, because we don't have a, a sort of. Sure. Uh, right. Yeah. A, yeah. And I didn't a, mean to apply a store of rituals just, from yeah. from Middle Earth that we could that we could, right. you know. Yeah. So it's, it's not like but, they're but, breaking lore. But we have a couple of things, including. Yeah, okay including what is the relationship of the Numenorians to the sea? Yes. Like, and, and the yes. way that that is embodied. And there is yeah. a particular ritual, which we have uh, some descriptions of where yeah. they sort of make this offering uh, to um, Uvienen in order to, uh, yeah. uh, not Uvienen, maybe anyway, they, they, they make this, uh, uh, this offering to the lady of the sea so that she will protect them from Osi's wrath, you know, from the storms and the jagged coastlands and all these things as they're sailing. And it's when they cease to do that is part of their part of the sort of downfall as mariners. Yeah. No, like, and and yeah, and clearly it's not just facing the sea and and, and you know barking out some. He's always right. Yeah, I mean that's not even it's not even a prayer for goodness sake. There's there's nothing there. But and the of course the other ritual that that you can immediately think about is Yes, the men of Westerness, Noel, thank you, is is that one scene in The Lord of the Rings uh, where they turn to the West and and, and uh, have a moment of silence, right? Or where they're give, giving thanks. But Uyenen. that's actually... Sorry, Uyenen is the, is the name of Osei's spouse. It just All right. eluded All right. me we, for a second there. That's okay. It, the same thing happened in the last episode, by the way. So those of you who are listening to these back-to-back, this is not... This is just yeah. the, the way the way the medieval mindset works. We repeat things again and again because they yes. are important. And, yes. and they're in the repetition. Yes. We are saying something important about the the cyclical or rather the helical structure of time and the world. But we can talk about that later because that's important too. <laughs> okay, so the, the ritual of the men of Westerness in Ithilien is exactly an example of how you could do it well because it's very simple there's not much you have to do but it is rooted in actual real life movements actions and realities it's connected to the most mundane thing of all which is of course also the most sacred thing of all eating together with other people in love right. at a table right um so this is what's missing and the the, the naming ceremony is just the presenting of the baby and people cooing at it that's it um and i know it's a dream and it probably it probably it's supposed to be a little bit odd, but I didn't think like they were <clears throat> creating a false uh, ritual there. I think they messed it up. I think they yeah. were trying to do something that was ritually significant because the the queen uh, t- the the queen regent takes the baby in her arms. That in itself is a good thing. Um, but everybody's sitting around and it feels like a baby shower. Um, so okay, that's fine. Yes. But can we? Yes. Okay, so that can be the the stratum, the underlying stratum from which we then build the thing, because you have to have reverence. You have to have words that, that um, uh, establish some kind of resonance between earthly action and heavenly reality. You have to have, uh, you have to have some, something that raises the, the mundane upwards, right? So it's like, they're, it's like they're doing, they're not quite able to get it. It's not, it's not rooted enough. Uh, And it it was definitely a big miss for me there. And that, that baby shower vibe, I think that hits the nail on the head because the, I mean, the whole origin of the baby shower is a sort of uh, like evangelical replacement for a christening. 
right? Yeah. You know, which is supposed to be a time that your family comes together, people bring gifts for the child, people come together and sort of commit to be, obviously more is happening, obviously. But, uh, but one of, you know, at the very basic community level, the people of your parish community are coming together to invest in your life and the life of your child and to say, we're here for you and we're going to yeah. be, you know, and, and, you know, this is when the, you know, the child, um, you know, the child is, uh, in some cases, this is when the child is named, right? So identity is conferred upon them. Obviously they're, they're brought into the church, all these different things. Okay. But, but when, when that gets taken away, when that sacramental aspect of things gets taken away, what you have left is the baby shower, which by the yeah. way, men don't typically go to. And I did notice this was like an all female setting. Yes, right? it was. <laughs> um, which is weird because the, because the role of naming is a fundamentally masculine role. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, or like it, that, it is in traditional cultures. Right. Well, that I mean, yeah, that's what I mean. But I mean, like, even a, <laughs> if a woman does the act of naming, mm -hmm. which in some cases she can do, that's still a masculine role that she's playing. Right. Yes. And so yes. It was, it's, it's it, Adam's role. Yeah. Yeah, it's Adam's role. So uh, whereas motherhood is a is a fundamentally feminine role, right? And yeah. so th the the total absence of the identity conferring masculine and like within that ritual and it's just sort of like here's all the women and we're being together yeah. we're having girl time we're talking yeah. about how beautiful your baby is that's lovely but it did feel like they were trying to communicate that this was like i mean this isn't just anybody's house they're at the palace and here's all these women and they've all got babies so oh no no like it's it's not a it's not it's not a baby shower this was supposed to be a ceremony and yeah. by the way uh i know we're trying to set up set up the scene for the the you know the the prophecy of the of the uh, drowning of Numenor, which by the way, I had a real problem with, but we can talk about that later. Um, but come to think of it now, the idea just popped into my head. Why not have that scene on the beach and have some sort of a christening uh, of the baby in the water? I mean, this is Numenor, but it would it would be the most normal thing. Even if you just pick up the baby towards the water, or do something, you know, like, uh, and then imagine the, the scariness of the scene where the waters rise up instead, yeah. instead of the waters blessing the baby, the waters rise up and take the entire city how much cooler would that be <laughs> and you could have even done something with the ritual in that case like working in this this uh this love and devotion that the Numenorians have to uh have to the the maya of the sea and things mm -hmm. like this and you could be like you know we're calling upon a higher power asking her to come out and yeah. bless like you know bless our child or something like they, they, yes they could have gone just like a little bit farther with it and i think it would have been a lot more compelling because they're they're not afraid of of calling on the gods they use both the, the words god and valar right, right. Uh, but this also might be uh, pointing to a, a larger underlying problem and that's how do we how do what is our relationship to the divine and i don't think that they figured that out for themselves yet and they certainly haven't figured it out yeah. for the for the story uh and again we will talk about that in more detail in a bit uh but we should probably talk about the two uh, two additional scenes that I thought were really good in episode okay. five. And that's, uh, I thought that the scene between Galadriel and Halbrand, when we finally get some good context for the phrase touching the darkness, I actually thought that was pretty good. And I'll explain why. And you can tell me if I'm okay. wrong. Okay. Um, because I, I, she definitely tried to use it in, in the way that we've been expecting that in in the anti-tolkien way like oh hellbrand it's okay you can turn to the to the light because you've touched the darkness and that's what we all have to do because that's how we turn to the light but if you're actually listening to what goes on there she's confessing her darkness and and it's unresolved that scene she does not defend her her the tempest inside me she doesn't defend it she's crying she at the end of it she's she admits to the fact 
So it's a confession without a without a um, catharsis, right? She's still yeah. stuck in this in this weird arc that they've uh, that they've decided for. And by the way, Richard, you were I, I must say you were um, absolutely vindicated out of the mouth of Halibrand himself, <laughs> but because don't forget in the hot takes episode you did to Father Andrew, Father Andrew objected to you saying that she was motivated by vengeance, and Halibrand um, just put it all to rest he said yeah. the word vengeance so it's yeah. very clear that that's yeah. exactly what her motivation is yeah. but and i she thought she continues to deny it yes but 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 then she does not have a compelling answer no. for why she's still doing this then no and yeah. and the best she can do is kind of open herself up a little bit to him right and say i am be my my friends are starting to associate me with the dark so she had it's not confession time yet but yeah. it is on the on, on the road to it and so I think, I think, and I hope that this is actually a, a, um, an intentional step by the writers to have her repudiate that, uh, that line of thinking towards the end of her character arc. I think that's what's happening. Um, of course, it's problematic as Halliburton because I think we can all, we all know that he's going to be a bad guy, whether he's sour or not, or not, we'll see, but he's not going to end up as one of the good guys. So having him kind of be the the list listener in on the confession is a problem but yeah yeah okay so i disagree a bit i think with your interpretation of how this line is being used okay um and that is that you know when we first heard the line at the end of episode one i yeah. had the thought i do not like that but i think there's a strong chance it was just a fluke yeah when they like maybe they just wanted something cool here and they're right. like that sounds right. cool and they didn't think about it and they just put it in right. um because a lot of the dialogue comes across that way to me. Uh, yes. When they use it here, when they use it here, I was more concerned because I felt like, okay, what, what they're, they're committing to it. That's a callback. So now we're committed to that. We're going to hear it again later. Yes, we are for sure. Yeah, yeah, and and I feel like uh, I feel like it it was it's being un unambiguously accepted that this is an acceptable lens through which to deal with your stuff. I mean, it could be. I hope you're wrong, and I think there's enough of Halburn's reaction to suggest that maybe it's not. But I, yeah. I agree, it could go both ways. I agree. Yeah. I so so that's my that's my concern because I think that is something that is really genuinely subversive of yeah. Tolkien's yeah. whole the way that he maps light and dark, good and evil. No, that and, that would be that would be yeah. a, a that would be a failure of Tolkien's yeah. vision. So strong I'm, language here. I I am I was sort of like. Uh, and heartened to see Gladriel basically admit that she might have done anything wrong for the first yes. time. <laughs> yes. That was nice. And at <laughs> yes. this point, at this point, this is I mean, I'll just say, at this point, this character is not Galadriel. No. She's not she's not Galadriel in the Legendarium. She is some other character. Yeah. They're doing some other thing. Yes. And I don't want to continue to beat the dead horse of why I dislike this portrayal of the character Galadriel so much. So yes, we've I'm already about on record. Yeah, I'm already on record about that. Um but I, I mean, but it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's interesting because I think as the show goes on, it's a fairly well-recognized fact though. Even a lot of reviewers who are initially super positive about the show, yeah, yeah. this character for five episodes in, I mean, uh, there've been some really harsh critiques coming from yeah. like Forbes and places like this, yeah. looking at it and saying, actually, this character is the big weakness in the show. Yeah. So I, I, saw, I saw that actually. Yeah. yeah. So I hope that the writers, um, I'm glad to see like more general recognition of that because I hope the writers uh, take that into account for season two. And I mean, they they can they they're aiming for five seasons if it yeah. doesn't get canceled. So yeah, they still totally have time to turn this around. 
And I hope that this moment was the beginning of that for this character. Me too. Um, one of the things that that I did not like about this scene mm -hmm. was that it came across as kind of like a, I don't know how, uh, how to call this, but like a, a struggle off. Like yeah. it was like a little bit of a contest to see who's been victimized the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's yeah? Who's and, suffering more? Yeah. And <laughs> it's when Galadriel says, you know, well, here's all the things I've lost, all the things I've suffered. That Halbrand finally softens to her because because she sort of wins the I've suffered the most contest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and this is something that I just I hate it in the real world. Yes. I hate it. I think that it is objectifying, and I think yeah. that it like, yeah. So I that was something that kind of bothered me about just the tone of the scene um yeah. well it's it's simplistic it's simplistic character motivation it's simplistic writing it's right. it's emblematic of a larger problem that they have with right. with things of depth um they they don't they don't seem to be able to to pass on that reality is nuanced um they, they want it's almost like they want everything to be uh said in a single slogan like the whole thing is just it's right yeah let's let's reduce it to its most basic thing and you know in that in that same vein i really hated there was one line in this that almost made me throw my computer and break it across the wall and i just hate when this happens and it's been happening a lot in in uh, modern uh, in recent last few years writing yeah. um and that's when she suggested that the fact that she used him might be uh inferred by others that he was using her which means it's because you're a man and i'm a woman i'm like come freaking on are you kidding me she's not a woman he's not a man what are you doing this she's a first of all she's an elf she's so much older than he is this is i mean it's wrong on so many levels but it passed really quickly and it's almost like somebody forgot to edit it out because it, it's so jarring compared to everything else and it doesn't and, that sort of thing doesn't I, happen in the rest of the episode i thought like, the i thought the implication there was more like well you're the one who stands to gain from this because you'll get a kingdom out of it and so well, that's, that's that's what it should have been that's but the way that's the way she said it was yeah. entirely you're a man i'm a woman this is how everybody's going to be looking at it right yeah which but I, mean, <laughs> I will say i like the moment where like he's a like he's working in the forge. Obviously, this 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 dude from the Southlands, yeah. greatest magically makes a sword in five minutes. <laughs> like I was like I was like you know I feel like the Numenorians would be like well that's very nice you you know lower man but mm -hmm. like you know let me show you a real sword right but yeah, okay never yeah, mind anyway yeah, yeah. so Halbrand is you know he's in the and and the, the soldier comes and he's like you know the queen queen regent Muriel. Uh, request your presence or whatever mm -hmm. and he says yeah. okay and so he like takes the amulet or the the little sign of his kingship yeah. sets it down and then the, the camera lingers on it yeah. and there's this genuine surprising moment where he just kind of comes back and grabs it in yeah. A, yeah, yeah and just like almost at almost like a win like at the very last moment he changed yeah. his mind um yeah and i actually found that very effective i wasn't expecting it, it. was surprising it yeah. subverted my expectations and again it was there was like a moment of of almost, I wouldn't say quite delight there, but there's definitely a moment of, oh, that's that's kind of nice. Like he, you know, you. It, it was real. Yeah, it was human. Yeah, right. It, because it felt like the conversation he had with Galadriel earlier actually had time to sink in. Yeah. Like a real person would yes. like, you wouldn't just yes. change your mind instantly. It would take some time for something to sink in. And I thought that was a nice way of showing us that but they didn't tell us in a heavy-handed way right? yes it's, just... like, it's like they're learning as they're as they're going through the episodes yeah, i don't know it's yeah. really interesting <laughs> the... 
Go ahead, Richard. Except you want to say that, something? Except, except that. that. So this brings me to the stuff that I felt really was really egregious about mm. these these two episodes and this this episode in particular. Do, do we so want to do we want to leave that until later so we can talk positive things about Doran and Elrond? Okay. Yeah. Well, that Doran and Elrond is actually a nice segue into the thing that I'm currently processing. Okay. About. So all right, let's, let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So um, I I thought Doran and Elrond. Uh, this whole in episode five, I thought the the exchange between them, I thought the conversation, the level of writing in the conversation was very high. I thought that yeah. that what they were able to do with that friendship by suggesting, not telling, was very profound. Uh, and um, not you know, regardless of what Mithril actually means, which we'll talk about a lot. Um, and boy, do I hate boy. what they did. Um, but we'll get there. Um, you know, and also, it's in not notwithstanding that Adoran has a foul mouth, which I really take objection to. And yeah, let right. this be on the record. I'm sorry, that was absurd, uncalled for, and extremely untolkienian. And guys, right. listen, all right, this is you should never ever allow yourself the luxury of that kind of a low laugh. That is pathetic. That is just pathetic. But let's move on. Um, everything else about it. Uh, it was brilliant. That those these two actors are doing a really nice job. You really get a sense that they respect each other, uh, that the characters respect each other, that that this is a grounded relationship. That initially, see, it seemed to me initially that the that the offense at Elrond was a little bit strained. Yeah, uh, I understand that for, twenty for, years and all that sort of thing, but yeah, yeah. It, it's just it felt a little bit like they need they needed to manufacture a uh, a problem so that they right. could overcome it right. but having done that and having allowed it to happen this it's was a very natural enough. way to, yeah yeah it's been good enough since then um yes yes to yeah. forgive the initial <laughs> the initial misstep so yeah anyway i thought it was a great scene a really wonderful moment um i thought all the elrond duran like the moria stuff in episode four was great mm -hmm. um a lot of people made a really big deal about dis singing the funeral song which I thought wasn't actually a funeral song. I thought it it's was not. like this. No, We're singing. Okay, song. okay. A lot of people said funeral song. Like I saw. A no, it was a song. prayer. It was so, a prayer. Yeah, it was a prayer to the stone that yeah. they would release the uh, the the miners unharmed. I think this is a cool thing for dwarven culture to have. Yep. It makes I agree. sense to me. Yep. Um, and especially and the it's way serious. It's not yeah, a joke, which is nice. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, I would very much like to stop using dwarves as comic relief. Yeah. Um, me um, too. Which which I mean, if you think about the like the implications of that it's a little a little icky like like oh yeah. look, here here are some short people let's yeah. make them the butt of the joke like mm, mm -hmm. mm. but um yeah no i uh i i like that i i didn't like some people like really uh pardon the pun resonated with it they were like oh this is really amazing and i was like no this is nice like this should yeah, be it's nice. the, yeah but but i mean i guess what i mean by that is like i felt like this is the bar that everything should be at like yeah. this wasn't yeah. like this should be the minimum <laughs> right right this is the minimum like <laughs> amount of world building you need to do to really make yeah. this you know um but yeah i mean i i thought that was lovely i thought all the stuff even like detective elrond using his elven powers to like read <laughs> people in moria i thought was kind of cool i was kind of like oh, that's a little like um like I mean, I mean, certainly elves would be able to do something like that. So that yeah. I thought that was kind of neat. It, it worked. And it worked. Um, and I liked the stuff that we got in this episode, uh, in, in episode four and episode five, 
way more references to Irendil and that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, which people, if, if, if someone is out there saying, oh, they can't make these references to Silmarillion yeah. lore because they don't have the rights, they yeah. totally, totally can, right? Yes. They're, they're referencing all this stuff. They even they even use Elrond's like proper uh, 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 Gilgalad uses Elrond's proper appellation of half Elven, right. half Elven right. uh, in yeah. episode five, and it almost seems like it's intended as like a dig, like you're only half Elven. Yeah, like, it comes across that way, which we'll talk about the Gilgalad. No, thing we will. But, and and but, um, the racist. But thing but I mean, that, yeah. like like they're able to work in all kinds of stuff from the first age and from the Silmarillion material. So yeah. I think that I think that. Oh well, you're just forgetting they don't have rights to X, Y, and Z. That as an argument that is becoming less compelling to me because a I I'm pretty sure none of us who are not like lawyers and have actually looked at what contracts were signed know exactly what they do and don't have rights to. Yes, and it is clear that they have the rights to use names and concepts and things like that that are not explicitly in the appendices of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So they worked something out. Yeah, so, they did. For sure. Um, so yeah, um, I so I liked all the Moria stuff in uh, in uh, episode uh, four, and I know that one of the questions we had last time during the un unrecorded Q and A uh, portion was what what did they find at the heart of the mountain? And yeah. you remember I said somebody said, "Do you think it's a Silmaril?" And I said, "No, it better not be a Silmaril. It's yeah. definitely Mithril." Well, apparently they did both. Yes, and boy, am I. <laughs> All right, let's go. Go for it. Okay, go all right. I've been uh, I've been go. restraining myself this whole time. <laughs> go, okay. go, go. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So <sighs> an elf and a balrog hit a tree at the same time a bolt of lightning struck it, mm -hmm. and the tree had one of the Silmarils inside of it. And kids, that's how Mithril was made. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this, oh, so first of all, this, the, the, one of the things that scene had that really felt jarring to me mm -hmm. was the CGI. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, in general, the C CGI in the show has been very good, except for that one warg who looked like yep. the, the Honey Bunches of Oats monster. But, Chua warg. Yeah, Chua warg. <laughs> but other than that, like the CGI in the show has been great. Obviously, they had a really good budget. They put a lot of work into things. Uh, actually, the Snow Troll kind of looked iffy, but whatever. Anyway. Yeah. So, uh, but I've already forgotten about that scene completely. Yeah, so, yeah. Because it was pointless and yes. didn't teach us anything. Nope. Yeah. So, so the, the, in this scene where Elrond is supposed to be recounting this bit of obscure apocrypha, apocrypha, role. yeah, like, like, <laughs> I, mm, mm, mm. but anyway, okay, okay, okay. So, so he's recounting this bit of lore, and he says, uh, and as he's recounting it, they show us this sort of CGI presentation, and I think the idea is they're supposed to be showing us something that is mythical, yes, like, like it's a, it's a. Uh, but that would have been so much better served if they'd done it in like 2D with like some sort of, uh, for instance, like illumination, like like. Okay, so you know what's happening here? Have you seen Hellboy two? Yes. So it's it's Hellboy two. Yes. So yes. they're just they're just assuming that this is so much already a cultural convention that you know events in the past or world building info or stuff like that needs to be done by dolls. Right. I and I don't know why, not... but there you go. And it looked bad. 
it did yeah. didn't effectively communicate it, it didn't effectively communicate this is a serious bit of lore that you should care about what it communicated to me as a reader of tolkien who a knows the last silmaril was not imprisoned inside of a tree are you crazy i mean that's the stupidest what? thing i ever heard in my life <laughs> what and, and literally this is the thing this is what i was talking about from before where it's it's a matter of it's a matter of um how do i put this uh, uh people are like okay what do elves like elves like trees so mm -hmm. how do we make somebody feel like this is a tolkien moment let's have an yeah. elf be forced to cut down the tree yeah, yeah. boom haters mic dropped See, yeah. look, it's a Tolkien thing because <laughs> exactly. we made an elf cut down a tree and there was sad music, yes. right? This yes. is the same kind of thing. They were like, oh, what would happen to the last Silmaril? Elves like trees. It's it's inside of a Silmaril on top of the Misty Mountains. Why on top of the Misty Mountains? Like, if you know anything at all about the Silmarillion, that is also something which makes zero sense, mm -hmm. right? And then, but an elf and a Balrog are fighting over the tree. And so the elf is is... I quote, poured all of his light into the tree. So it's like, okay, elves have a mana bar that's got yes. this much light in it. Mm -hmm. And if I use the light, the mana bar goes down. Yes, it does. Which is a weird gamification of the relationship between elves so and light weird. in so the Legendarium. Weird. Like, really strange. Yeah. And, and he's pouring all of his light into the tree. And the Balrog, he's pouring all of his damage per second into the tree because this is World of Warcraft now. Yes. And, and then right at the moment that they're both pouring everything into the tree, lightning strikes the tree, and kids, that's how Mithril was made. And if you... Man, I, I mean, this the reason this is upsetting to me mm -hmm. is because there are several places throughout the show where it is now very clear yeah. that they have chosen to change or ignore things that existing wrote. yeah existing like existing things, lore yeah. right Re in some cases really deep beautiful pieces of myth really beautiful complex characters like galadriel yes. as yes. she is written right mm -hmm. they've chosen to ignore those things in favor of this stuff okay but then my question is why would you then having set that stuff aside replace it with a sort of what i'm going to call myth light which yes. i know it credit for that uh i was talking to my friend reno today and he's the one that used that phrase and i said yes that's exactly it it's mm -hmm. a sort of a myth light you you took something of real substance and weight and you replaced it with a sort of like myth light and then added in some game of thrones light machinations yeah you kind of worked in around it and so instead of the complex instead of the complexity of the world and the subtlety of the world and everything instead of that being present in the world building and in the in the story that you're telling and in the the mythology right this really beautiful complex wonderful very verisimilitudinous mythology that Tolkien yeah. gives us we set that to the side and we mm -hmm. replace it with this kind of myth light and then to to make up for the fact that now we've dumbed everything down to kind of it's a, a certain level we mix in a bunch of well actually everybody is manipulating everybody and yeah. this is why I hated episode five. Like I said, episode mm -hmm. four so far, high yeah. point for me, has the most even writing of any episode for sure. so far. Yeah. Had a lot of wonderful moments. Episode five is basically about everyone is manipulating everyone else. And there was an even, even an article mm -hmm. that came out about this in CNET, I think it was today, mm -hmm. praising this fact. Praising the fact that, yes, and it literally said, wow. finally, we have Tolkien characters who are shades of gray. That is literally oh, what the article says. 
Yeah, is okay. Well, finally, this person so, has never read Tolkien, clearly. Well, yeah, first of all, the person <laughs> has never read Tolkien. But basically, the point is, finally, Tolkien is more like Game of Thrones. Why? Because everybody is manipulating everybody else. And this yeah. brings me to the heart of my frustration. Uh, we'll set aside the terrible lore for a second. right? We'll get and, back to it. Don't worry. Yeah, we'll come back to it. But this brings me to the heart of my deep frustration with this episode, which is the portrayal of Gilgalad and the elves. Yeah. What what we find out is that elves are snobby. They're racist. Yes, they they're are, racist. Um, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. They're racist. They're, they're snobby. They're racist. And and Gilgalad and Celebrimbor, like it's all just been they're manipulating Elrond, who is at this point the most decent character in the whole show. Yeah. Right? Uh, which yeah. being a huge Elrond fan, that doesn't make me upset. Okay. Sure. Like, sure. <laughs> yeah. Like I like him so much. I've forgotten about his haircut. Like that's yep. how much yep. I like this character. Very true. Me too. <laughs> I like this character. But, but, and, and, and here's the thing. Here's the bizarre reason that they give for what's the point of all of these manipulations. Here we go. The point of all of this is, and I'm going to, I typed this out when I heard it. Because I thought it was so bizarre. Um, so elves are light bulbs. <laughs> no, it's worse. Elves aren't light bulbs. Elves are glow in the dark frisbees. There so, you go. <laughs> so because because um, oh man, where is this line? Okay, here it is. This is it's so bad. Worth, it is so this, bad. It's one of the almost, worst lines I've ever heard. It's so. This bad. is almost word for word. Yeah. Uh, Celebrimbor talking to Elrond says, "Elrond, I have tested it. Talking about Mithril yeah. under every conceivable test." Nothing diminishes its light. We believe that if we can obtain vast quantities, enough to saturate every elf in saturate. the light of, to saturate every elf in the light of the Valar, then it could be our salvation. He doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, he 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 says actually. Then yes, yes, but but that's in in, in the answer yeah, to the question because it's, yeah, it's, it's really right, safe. Right, so right. so that's an actual quote like this. This and like, do you hear the? I I I, I said this wrong. I think earlier. Uh, maybe it's on an episode of Amazul when I said I didn't like how they sort of like scientified the magic. Yes, but it, yes. that's not what it is. It's they gamified the magic. Yeah. Okay. Right? Very they good. so so they they gamified the magic. So if this is World of Warcraft or heck, if this is Dungeons and Dragons, which by yes. the way, I am like on the record probably more than anyone cares about now, like <laughs> as somebody who enjoys tabletop role playing games. Yep. Um, I got a cease and desist email like for Ammon Sewell, like could you please stop talking about tabletop role-playing games now are you no, serious no, <laughs> yeah well you know it's it's fine like some people like it's just not their deal i get that but it's an important part of you know the way that i engage in story so yeah. but in a game like you have to have like things make uh 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 like represented mechanically in a certain way so yes like, like as, it's a magic it's a magic system thing right as a player you need to be limited to what you can do you know over certain time increments whether it's daily or hourly or whatever so yeah. then you would have like so many spells per day or you would have you know in in like a game like world of warcraft you would have like so much mana so you can do this many cool special abilities and then your mana runs out so yeah. and that is what they did with the elves they tried to yes. take the, take one of the most mysterious yes things in the legendarium which is the fading of the elves yes and basically narrow it down to elves are running out of mana and we have until next spring to replenish our sort supply and if we don't, then we just evaporate. And and this that, is that's craziness. It's just insane. It's it's insane to to suggest that it, these immortal beings could just lose their could have their soul like hissing out of a puncture in yeah. a tire. 
I mean, and there is what? certainly a sense in some of the uh, the stuff that Tolkien writes that the elves do fade, right? Because their time in Middle Earth is ending. Yeah. And the way that I'm sure that this is a setup. I'll but the fading of the right. elves is is has everything to do with the rings of power being tied to the to the one right. ring. Right. So I'm sure that because like it's the, the legend, fact that they took the mystery they stuck it into a thing and then right. made that thing contingent made right. it about power and then made the mistake of making that contingent power contingent on a greater power that was a power for evil right. so of course it's going to fade duh right. and so so that's the thing in the legendarium the elves the rings are clearly made to uh to prevent fading and to so that the elves can make middle earth more like valinor so my assumption and i don't know why i'm assuming this because I, I I cannot accurately predict what the showrunners are going to no. do next. No, you can't. <laughs> uh, but but I, I I feel like this is a setup for here's why we need the rings. It's another Oh, for sure. Way. No, no, no. I agree with it's, you with that. Yeah, so yeah, I, right. I assume that's the setup, which that itself I don't hate. Like the the whole the we are fading and it we our choices either stay in Middle Earth or go to Valinor, but if we stay in Middle Earth, we're going to diminish. So we need to make yes. these rings. That yeah. in and of itself is a fine yes. idea. Yeah, no, I agree. And this is this is my issue with this whole thing. Yeah, is because it, the this this uh, this particular part of the of the episode is was maddening to me because as soon as I as I heard that thing about saturating the elves with light, I I I laughed out loud. I mean, it's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. You, it, but okay, so maybe some people. Or like, you know, like I got pushed back last time from one of my patrons. Can you please explain why? Because maybe it's not obvious to all of us. Okay, yeah. well, uh, Richard, you actually, your intuition was correct. It's not merely the gamification. It's also the scientification. And I'll explain why. Um, I think I may have talked about this, maybe not with you, but maybe in a different podcast. Uh, the reason that the fantasy readers and fantasy fans expect this sort of thing is not only because of the popularity of dungeons and dragons because let's be honest it's it's kind of it's kind of a niche it's not you know not the majority of fantasy readers do not necessarily play dungeons and dragons there's a lot of them that do but it's probably not a majority if you consider the the popularity of the genre as a whole but what happened is that um tolkien's fantasy is untouchable right because it comes as the new york times article makes very clear it comes from a vast source of knowledge that was gathered over the course of an entire lifetime by somebody who did nothing but saturate himself <laughs> with knowledge with mystery with sacrament okay this this man was filled filled to the gills with mystery with knowledge with the ancient and medieval world okay nobody could possibly duplicate it but it was very popular in the us especially paperback sales so what are you going to do as a publisher you start looking for things that are going to be similar and some things existed some things didn't they tried to make mervyn peak uh gormangas into the into the second coming of tolkien it didn't work because it's very bizarre and, and strange and difficult to read for a lot of people so the next thing they could do was i don't know if they hired him to do this or if it was just manna from heaven but terry brooks terry brooks is uh the sort of shenara is not myth light it's tolkien light in the sense that it takes all of the beats of tolkien's story it provides a template for making the magic something that can be quantified and not yeah. something that is a mystery that has to do with the relationship right. of created beings with their creator which is the entire basis of magic which is actually grace in tolkien's world it's not something that and by the way the uh peter jackson got this wrong because the wizard duel between uh saruman and gandalf is exactly a manifestation of this incorrect view right. of how magic works in tolkien's world so after the, the coming funny thing just real quick the funny yeah, thing yeah. about that wizard duel 
is that it's so off tone everyone yeah. just forgets about it like yeah, we instantly we inst like when i think about the peter jackson films yeah I you just, don't think about that yeah. i don't think about it at all because i forget it happened i think about gandalf fighting the balrog on the bridge but yeah. i don't think about that scene because that scene is so it's just so off key yeah and it's almost like they they understood it because all the other manifestations of Gandalf throughout the rest of the three movies are much closer to the way it was supposed to be, except for that horrible scene where, uh, where the witch King of Angmar breaks the staff. But luckily that wasn't in the, in the theatrical version. Uh, there was probably a good reason why they didn't include it. Uh, yep. Anyway, back to, back to this scientification of fantasy right. after yeah. Terry, after Terry Brooks, what happened is that there was a bunch of science fiction uh, authors, very good ones, ones that were, that were selling well and getting uh, awards in science fiction. These guys, these guys are very, very well, um, uh, very good in, in the craft of sci-fi. These are people like the, the, the George R. R. Martin, who was known before, uh, before Game of Thrones for his science fiction writing. That's the thing that got right. him his chops. He's a and very excellent and technical... Books. And comic books, yeah. Um, so there's a whole bunch of hard sci-fi writers from the 80s and early 90s who were not making a lot of money in the fantasy genre. Sorry, in the sci-fi genre, because sci-fi has a much smaller readership than fantasy. Right. They they jumped over that uh, the genre cliff, and they started to write fantasy. But they are trained in the in the craft of writing sci-fi, and sci-fi is entirely dependent on making a technically, scientifically plausible uh, premise. Yep. Science fiction doesn't work unless you have a what-if premise that's entirely based in plausible science. And by the way, I'm not talking about space opera. I'm talking about space, space fantasy. I'm talking about hard sci-fi because those that's the genre that these fantasy writers, uh, these sci-fi writers came into from fantasy. So over the course of the 90s and the aughts, with the popularity of books like Game of Thrones, this became the standard that readers begin to expect. And of course, it it's also aided by the fact that you, know, you have uh, the Dungeons & Dragons movie, you have... Aragon and things like this, all of which lend themselves very easily to this kind of gamified sort of thing. So this is now the the golden standard, or it's fool's gold standard, I think, in fantasy writing. You're expected as a fantasy writer to have a intricately crafted magic system. Otherwise, the readers will complain. This is what right. they've come to expect. So right. that being the case, it's a default thing. Even if you're uh, writing a riff on a Tolkien story, so the because of this expectation in the world, they're not willing to risk the very dangerous and very, I think it would be very interesting to try to uh, have a magic, have magic that's not quantified by a system, something that's suggested a much better mystery, by the way, than the mystery box they keep, they keep uh, manufacturing in here. And yeah. by the way, just for the record, this is exactly why in, in my fairy tale, the fantasy universe, there is no magic system. It's not because I'm a, I'm a sloppy writer, but it's because I, I, on purpose, try to evoke a different kind of magic that isn't so hard and fast when it comes to rules. Of course, it has some rules. Theology is also systematic. <laughs> you can find systematic theology. It, however, doesn't uh, limit the reality of what what God is. The fact that we have a systematic theology. So it's 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 really unfortunate that they decided to do this but they seem to be fighting with themselves because in the first scene where they talked about the saturation of the elves it's clear that they're doing this gamification scientification thing but later on in that same scene when uh Killebrimbor continues to talk it's almost like they're again talking about a lack of grace connection with the valar 
and that being the i don't remember the exact phrase and it might be more something that was more implied than spoken yeah. and i'll have to watch that scene again to but i really it kind of dulled the the pain for me because for a second there they almost said the thing that they were supposed to that this is a consequence of their deciding to be far from the vela yeah. And that, of course, is exactly what you want to hear. That that accumulation of power to yourself, that decision to be a kind of valor unto yourself, a valor unto yourself. Yeah. That is a wonderful. Uh, that's a wonderful reason for the world around you to start fading. That's absolutely brilliant. But this kind of, I mean, what? Yeah, the batteries are are getting uncharged. I mean, that's it's awful. It's just awful. I mean, and this is the kind of thing I, I know that a lot of people, um, you know, like in, in sort of like the, the realm of Tolkien media, um, mm. uh, Father Andrew and I were not invited to any premieres, but, uh, <laughs> which is fine. But, um, um, a lot of people in the realm of Tolkien media, like podcasters and things like this, um, including like the Prancing Pony guys who have probably yeah. the, the, certainly the biggest Tolkien podcast, although in, in, in like, subsequent episodes they've come out uh extremely critical of the show mm -hmm. um but um uh what a lot of people have kind of uh said is said initially is oh well the showrunners have a really deep understanding of tolkien's lore and they're going to be they really have deep understanding of tolkien easter eggs that's what they have deep understanding of yeah so so this is the thing this is the thing there is um because there have been a couple of times that i've been talking to different people about the show at church and wherever else um that have said oh well but they they were but they referred to Fenor, they referred to irindel yeah. they referred to this I'm like yes but there's a difference between giving it lip service which you're calling yeah. an easter egg which i think is a really good apt description there's a difference between here's an easter egg in case you've read the books mm -hmm. and really actually re like which 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 implies a sort of strip mining of the books for yeah. name locations and stuff you could and do that with google Right. You right. don't need to have a deep knowledge of the right. word to be I could have done that. Yeah, I could have done that with like any one of the Tolkien wikis that is out there. Yeah, right. Easy. You know? Um, there's a difference between that and then having like a really deep understanding for like what are the core tensions in a Tolkien story, right? Yeah. And if you decide to put a different tension, right, you would actually make this about a contemporary political issue. The elves are coming to take our jobs. Oh, I mean, I couldn't believe that. So you want to talk about that? I want to talk about that. Okay. So I mean, yeah, go this, ahead. Go ahead. So like, I don't know what to say about it. It was just very frustrating and atonal to me. But yeah, yeah. well, I, I think I know what to say about it. And I think it's some people are not going to be happy about it, but you're just gonna have to deal with it because this is something that is yet another manifestation of the unfortunate reality that people nowadays do not have the same grounding in uh, culture and literature that Tolkien did. So what's going on here that's very frustrating to me is this very um surface level equation of race and nation and people into the same thing so i really hate this which and is something tolkien himself would have been appalled at he would have yeah but i don't think that they realize that that's what they're doing i honestly think this is just the way that modern people think about differences they equate all like the other is everything right it's skin color it's nation it's uh it's people it's all those things they're just manifestation of the same otherness that is such a reductionist view of human nature it is such an impoverished view of what it means to be human and unfortunately i think it may be at least partially a a product of of america lacking the kind of roots to be able to understand what it means to be an american person um 
to a European, this sort of thing, even to a modern European, this sort of thing, I'm sure it sounds very bizarre because a race is not a people, is not a nation. They're all very different. They can be intertwined in very, very tight ways uh, as they were in, you know, in uh, Nazi Germany, but they are not the same. And to equate them just shows a, a very profound level of ignorance when it comes to understanding the motivations of individual characters, as well as the motivations of uh, small communities, as well as the motivations of large communities. And that is a very troubling thing for the development of the show, because if you can't see the difference between all those, then you're not going to be able to have the kind of deep, profound catharsis that this sort of story needs to have. It's a tragedy, guys. This, this story is a tragedy. It's about expressing extremely deep human realities, profound human realities, nuanced human realities, and having different ones that are equally profound and nuanced coming up against each other in ways that become difficult for the characters in the, for, sorry, for the people in the audience to withstand and the characters in, in, the, in the story as well, which leads to the kinds of conflicts that lead to tragedy, to individual people making very bad decisions that then end up in the deaths of large swaths of people. The kind of thing, by the way, that's going on right now in Russia and Ukraine. And right. this, it's extremely frustrating. And it's, it's completely obvious in all of the reportage about the war as well. It's, it's almost like the entire culture, cultured uh, milieu of America is incapable of understanding the way that people make their identities. It's like the only way you do is you do it for yourself. That's, that's where we stopped. Go and make your own identity. Any other identity-forming force is simply disregarded or placed into that large blob of other that we don't understand, and therefore it must be something that's bad, and we can't have anything to do with it. So then every single expression of dislike against another. So Numenor dislikes the elves. It's because of jobs. So it's Trumpian. It, so the Numenorians are racists as well. So, so this is this is what really frustrated me about that. The more I think about it, why do the king's men in in the in the Akalabath, yes. right? Why do yes. the king's men hate the elves? Because the elves not because they're taking their jobs, <laughs> not because they're afraid the elves want their jobs, care about their jobs, even would care to ever move to Numenor. Like, why no. would the elves ever like if the elves want to sail somewhere, they can just go to the actual undying lands. And yeah. that's the thing the Numenorians are upset about. Yes. They can't, they're not allowed. They're not allowed to sail west, right? They're, it's it's, envy. They have it's been, deep, deep envy. They have been elevated, but they have been denied immortality. Yes. And they feel like, and to the point that they feel like it would have been better if they'd just been left alone by the gods than yeah. be elevated, but not taken up all the way. Right. So that's the, and of course, like what is what is uh, Tolkien say in the Waldman letter that what's the legendarium about? Among other things, it's about death, yeah. right? And the problem of death, which Tolkien felt very keenly. Of course, living through the largest yeah. losses of life in human history yeah. in the first and second world wars, right? This is something that he felt very keenly. This was really important to him. And and both showrunners were talking about it before the show came out, that this was an important aspect of how they wanted to tell their story. So you would have thought that one of the most right. obvious aspects of the the heart of tension, uh, or the, the tension at the heart, rather, of Numenor would be about immortality. But it's not, there's nothing about, they're not, they didn't even mention it yet. Right. It hasn't, hasn't been mentioned a single time. It's all about, well, we can't let the elves control us. 
but why? We don't know why. And that that whole thing yeah. about how how what the danger was about going Tar Palantir's way, and how we can't go that way because what? Because of they're afraid of January sixth happening in Numenor. Was that it? Yeah. She was a, she yeah. was afraid of an insurrection in the palace. What? That's what it. That's what it sounded like. Like, but you guys are Numenor. You're above this. This is your your concerns are deeper. They're more dark. Yeah. They're more frightening. They're more important than this nonsense. And and the thing is, like as a storyteller, you always have this option of do I just try to say something to the current moment, or yeah. do I try to say something that'll be timeless, right? And yes. Part of the reason that Tolkien hated people allegorizing the yes. ring to yes. be about the atom bomb isn't because the ring doesn't have important things to say about the atom bomb because it yeah. does, of course. But it's because he he saw what he was doing as being beyond just an allegory about a current political moment, right? And yeah. that is like, and so you had an opportunity, the showrunners had an opportunity to do that, to talk about yeah. one of the great themes of the Legendarium, one of the most timeless uh, themes that you can deal with in literature, right? This mm -hmm. problem of death and what do we do with it? I mean, how much of our lives as Orthodox Christians is centered around that problem and how Christ answers it, right? Yeah, and, yeah and for sure. So, so they had the opportunity to do that, but they decided instead to just like make a make a really flat, a really tone deaf uh, statement about current politics instead. And so this is the thing that really frustrates me about the portrayal of Numenor in general. Yeah. is that visually it is beautiful it is stunning it's gorgeous. there's it's a gorgeous. lot of implied world building that i really really mm -hmm. like there yep but yep. everything they're doing with the actual situation in numenor is totally predictable it's it feels totally contemporary yeah. um, so it's very clear tarmiriel is insert here and then arthurazon yep. is is uh is trump he's right? clearly he's the, clearly that, donald trump right yeah right <laughs> like and that's what we're gonna get and 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 that is to me more than anything else we were talking about this before the recording started like i'm not upset about this i'm disappointed yeah because because like it didn't you didn't have to do this it's not like you were painted into a corner and you had to make this choice because i didn't have the rights to this that or the other thing or, or something like that like this is yeah. this is a clear choice on the part of the showrunners they want to tell a, a story about numenor that is different than the story that tolkien told about it and yeah, again, for whatever reason, and, and I'm not sure what the reason is because there doesn't right. seem to be a good reason for it, to right. be honest. Right, and so as readers and as viewers, we are uh, well within our, let's say, rights or well within our remit to take a look at this compared to Tolkien and then just say, there's a deviation here. Is that an improvement or is it not? And they've done a lot of things in the show that I enjoy. I'm definitely going to finish watching the season, but this really disappointed me. Yeah. Um, there's a lot we could talk about more. And I think we're going to leave the other points that we put into our into our outline for another episode um, because we've been going for a while now. But I yeah. do want to end on uh, on. I would one... like to let's definitely start out talking with about the Southland story and the puzzle yeah. box thing next time. Yeah, because... yeah, for sure. Hopefully there'll be more information about it because at this yeah. point we can just we can only speculate. And it, it is too bad that also that, like uh, the stranger and the stuff that he's doing, like we didn't get to any of that stuff but yeah but again this episode gave us very little um yeah, and hopefully yeah. hopefully the next two well for sure the next two episodes have to give us a little more and hopefully it'll be more than a little right. but there's one thing i want to say and this is something i just want to throw out um and not necessarily for comment just just to think about maybe we can talk about this in future episodes and also for for my listeners to think about and that's the this um 
Tolkien's, the brilliance of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings um, is that he did a wonderful job of introducing um, readers into an epic battle, an epic conflict, an epic world, a world with many different layers, with many different characters, with many different motivations, races, uh, groups of people, land masses, everything you could possibly imagine, in a way that allowed for the reader to absorb it step in stepwise fashion and to have the full picture become more and more defined as time goes on. So for the first few books in Tolkien's division, we're almost completely in a single point of view yeah. with a single uh, motivating quest, a single journey, a single group of people. In fact, we start with completely localized in the small community of Hobbiton. This is not an approach that is, again, talking about the way that uh, fantasy novels work these days. There is a preference because of George Martin, because of large epic fantasy novels that are you know, doorstoppers, to immediately go and build the world from multiple perspectives, multiple points of view that fill in the gaps from multiple points over time. There is a certain interest and a certain excitement about doing that because you're able to see more immediately and readers especially. And in the printed um, medium, this works very well because the reader is challenged by the author to come up with world building details that the author hasn't provided yet. Right. So, so then, you know, we had the entire, uh, well, J plus S, whatever stupid thing in, in, uh, in uh, Game of Thrones, the, the theory about who Jon Snow was before it became obvious in the show. Everybody had figured out who Jon Snow was based on the world building and suggestions of the author. It's something that's very um, gratifying to the reader. It's also something that you can't do in the visual medium because the visual medium doesn't allow for uh, implication. Everything's right in front of you, right? So the only kind of implication you can have is by putting in stuff in the background and you have, you'd have to you know, stop the image and as some people do looking for, uh, for Easter eggs. If you want to tell the kind of epic sweeping story that they're trying to tell here, the I think that, and this is my personal opinion. I don't insist that this is that this need be the case, but I think this story would have been much stronger if it had followed the storytelling structure of something like the French, uh, British, American version of War of the Worlds, uh, which which is um, in its third season. It's a it's a modern retelling of the H.G. Wells classic. It's a very finely crafted, very dark, very difficult to watch show that does this. It starts with several characters, but all of those characters are in the same situation. They're in the same predicament. They're in basically the same world. And the only reason that you have the different perspectives is to give character motivation to individuals so that you can have more to feel when the danger begins. So that, that makes sense. But none of these characters are in different worlds with different world-building elements. They're just human beings in the world that we know. And very slowly, like inch by inch, they start to find out more and more about this extraterrestrial threat. And the extraterrestrial attack happens when they know nothing about who these extraterrestrials are. It just happens. And it's devastating and frightening and extremely effective because you don't know. And of course, you wouldn't know if you were inside that world. So if they had decided the showrunner, showrunners to choose one or two or several characters in a specific place, whether that were the Harf, Harfoots or whoever, I think the Harfoots would have been a natural choice. And then slowly throughout the season, move them out into the larger world, just like Tolkien did in Lord of the Rings. 
it would take away some of the problems of nuance that we're seeing here because the showrunners have to stick a bunch of stuff in within the first two episodes to set up the premises and the problems that the characters have immediately in four or five different places. And it's very awkward. It's There's a lot of uh, info dumping, world building kind of stuff going on. It doesn't work. And one of the reasons why episodes four and five are so much better is because we have fewer, um, we're, we leave out some of the stories in some of the episodes. Episode four didn't have any Harfoots, for example. Um, and Which that's, I thought was very strange. Yeah, well, because they couldn't like, fit it. Think, there's too many stories. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that was one sense I was like, oh, you guys have you, you guys you guys have too much material. Yeah. Which is not all totally necessary. Like like you should if you have like four, you know, is it four? Is that how many main plot threads we have? Um, um I haven't counted them. I think it might be five. Numenor, let's say Galadriel, Elrond, Harfoot, Harfoots, Doran. Durin and Elrond are kind of the same story. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I, I guess four. So, like, yeah. It's four. So, each of those things, if, yeah, yeah. So, it's, I don't know, that's a lot. Yeah. Anyway, continue. So, I mean, there, this isn't, there's not much, I, you know, you can do with this information. This is just right. me kind of wishing well, that they had done it somewhat differently because it would have been, I think, a much more effective way of telling the story. So, if I could put a plug here for something I think is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Drought, who is, again, a very respected Tolkien scholar. Um, he's the one that wrote that please don't make a Tolkien cinematic universe yeah. article for the New York Times. He also has done most of the lore and world building for the Lord of the Rings online MMO. So right. he definitely is somebody who understands adapting Tolkien to other media and how to go about that. Um, for instance, he actually composed all of the bits in in uh, um, uh, an Anglo-Saxon dialect called West Mersion for the for the Rohan area. When you get there and you hear little bits of dialogue, that's awesome. <laughs> he wrote all of that because he's a Anglo-Saxon expert. But cool. um, he has a video that you can find on YouTube, um, and I really recommend everyone go and check it out. It's called "How to Read Tolkien." I think mm-hmm. that's what it's called. Just Michael Drought, uh, D R O U T. We'll um, put Michael it in the Drought. show notes. So. Yeah, "How to Read Tolkien." Um, it's about an hour long. It is super with your time to listen to everyone awesome. it is oh gosh i'm, I'm gonna do this <laughs> he talks about he talks about really just every, how what is tolkien doing and how is he doing it and he talks about one of the things he talks about which is to your point is that tolkien always uses what is sometimes called the least knowledgeable character perspective yes so it's which is always which is always the hobbits when they're traveling together and then mm-hmm. once they split up it's always a hobbit and if a hobby is not a bit if a hobbit is not available then it's gimli because yep. Gimli, between Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, Gimli knows the least about the world yep. beyond the places where he's where he lived. So, mm-hmm. um, so that is, I mean, but he really breaks down how well that works, and also mm-hmm. how the Lord of the Rings actually has uh, the nature of a found manuscript, like a layer of medieval yes. manuscripts. Somebody Which has is, the, red, the red book. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, somebody has gone back and redacted the poetry, for instance. And there, yeah. there are cl- places there are places where that is actually clear in the text, and Tolkien did that deliberately. That's awesome. Um, I didn't know so that. That's so cool. It is a great video. And if you watch it, it will enhance your reading of Lord of the Rings tenfold. So I really recommend So there you go, everybody. We might be critical of the show, but we're giving you opportunities to enjoy Tolkien even more in the process, yeah. which is yeah. really what anybody who makes this this show would want. So they should they should actually thank us. They should thank <laughs> us. Yeah, they should thank us. Yeah. Right, that'll be it for today's episode. Uh, Richard will be with me again in two weeks uh, to talk about episodes six and seven, and then we'll have uh, a, a, a final 
uh, episode in the series to talk about the whole thing as a whole. So it should be fun. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud. <laughs>